1: guys and welcome to the moms and murder podcast a true crime podcast featuring myself mandy and my dear friend melissa hi melissa hi mandy how are you i'm doing great how are you i'm doing good as well do you think there will
0: ever be a time when we do an intro or just talk to each other that we don't like immediately get nervous as soon as we start and I'm like oh no she's gonna ask me how I'm doing and I don't have any stories I don't have anything to say we don't want to do the weather and it's been almost five years and we still yeah it still like makes my heart flutter when we start
1: I do I still get nervous I do so weird I know I'm not afraid to admit I still get nervous and I definitely still have like I don't know, some kind of imposter syndrome where I'm like, I still don't want to tell people that I do a podcast because I'm like, no, they're just going to laugh at me and think it's silly. And I'm like, well, really, I've been doing it for a long time. So it's kind of legitimate.
0: So I <laughs> literally no one I run into my husband's like, do you put that on your paperwork like for the doctor or anything? I'm like, Absolutely no, I not. don't know. No. no one knows anything. <laughs> Which is I just it's the same idea. I'm like, I don't know really what to say after that. So yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. So basically, well, like then there's uh, follow
1: up questions that I don't want to oh, answer. So many. Yeah. <laughs> there's always follow up questions. It's
0: normally somebody else that says, oh, by the way, she has this. And then it'll always uh. be in introducing me to somebody who's never heard of a podcast
1: so they're like oh what
0: time are you on the radio I'm like okay this is this is going downhill really fast (laughs)
1: let's not do this (laughs) yeah so yeah yeah. oh Oh my gosh same yeah definitely (laughs) right All right. So we're going to get right into the episode this week because there's a lot to bite off and chew, if you will, with this story. So we're going to not waste any time. It is probably going to be a little bit of a longer story. Um, So we'll just get right into it, Melissa. Sounds good. Yeah. So you guys have always heard Melissa and I joking about various things on the podcast. And I have said a lot of times, things to the effect that I could very easily have no problem moving to the forest and living among the animals. Of course, in my fantasy land, I have already acquired all of the survival skills I would ever need to survive any climate, any disaster, and any attack. And I would be lying if I said the idea of going off the grid and becoming a modern-day cave dweller didn't sound like a dream at times. Imagine how simple life would be if it were actually feasible to live off the land. No going to work. There's no paying bills. I guess you still have to... I guess there's still certain things you have, you have to, to survive as a cave woman. Yeah. So that that is hard. That is hard work. Things don't just come um, easy like, like that. Um, but in my head, this is a real life Snow White situation. So we're not talking about rugged, down and tough, anything like that. In my world, I'm just frolicking in the fields like with the animals and everything is already there for me. I don't have to do a lot. But in reality, the wilderness life, is not like that. It's a lot more rugged than what I just described. And even if there were people living in isolation out in the middle of nowhere, they probably would be pretty defensive of their territory and their lifestyle. And that was the case for a man named Claude Dallas, a self-proclaimed mountain man and aspiring cowboy who rebelled against the rules of society and mostly kept to himself until one day he was provoked to murder, Wild Wild West style. The term
0: mountain man always reminds me of a cologne. I'll never be able to get that out yeah. of my head. The when I hear mountain man. I would man,
1: never like, use that to describe a person, but he called himself that. So there you yeah, go. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> so Claude was born in Winchester, Virginia in 1950, and he was raised with his siblings in a Christian family. We aren't sure exactly how many siblings that Claude had, but one source described the Dallas family as being large. The family then moved to northern Michigan at some point when Claude was still young And they later moved to Ohio, where Claude grew up hunting with his brothers and his dad, Claude Sr., who was a dairy farmer. According to one of Claude's brothers, he was the nicest one of them all and rarely did anything wrong. Claude spent a lot of his time as a kid reading and learning about the Old West. The culture of that time really fascinated and resonated with Claude, and he dreamed of one day being a cowboy himself. Even after he had graduated high school, Claude still had this dream— So in 1967, he decided to move out west and become a cowboy. Claude first found himself in Oregon working as a modern-day cowboy of sorts, working livestock on horseback and doing whatever really needed to be done. In 1970, Claude moved to Paradise Hill, Nevada, and began working as a cowboy there, where he made a really good impression and earned a reputation for being a good farmhand. Some of the old-timer cowboys in the area even thought of Claude as being like a bonus son to them. Claude was really one to always be on the straight and narrow. He didn't smoke, he rarely drank, and he didn't really mess around, for lack of a better word. So one rancher that knew Claude said that he didn't think Claude liked to be around fake people or people who wanted to really BS him. Although Claude was good at being a cowboy and really enjoyed this lifestyle, this was far from being all that he was good at. He was very sufficient and he really just always wanted to live life on his own terms. As we said, Clyde had grown up hunting with his father and brothers, and when he was older, he continued to refine these skills as a hunter and trapper of game animals. And we're going to be getting into more details about this practice and how it relates to the story throughout this episode. So while Clyde was out west living the cowboy life, he really had no idea that the government had been looking for him because he had actually been drafted. So the draft notices that he was getting were going to his family's residence, and he wasn't informed about them. The FBI actually ended up arresting him in 1973 on charges of draft evasion, but they ended up dismissing the charges after they were able to confirm that Claude never got these notices. This experience, however, left Claude with a sour taste for the government, which you can understand if you got arrested for something that you had no idea was, you know, being sent out for you, that could really, really upset you.
1: Yeah, this is going to sound really crazy too, but I, like for a split second, when I was reading um, the research about this case, I forgot that drafts were a thing for a minute. And then I was like, oh yeah, I was like, oh man, like that's, you just don't hear about it as much anymore in stories, but this is an older story. So yeah, it makes sense, but it kind of caught me off guard when I read it. I was like, the draft, like, oh my gosh, I haven't even thought about that in so long.
0: So Claude tried to return his cowboy gig out west, but by the time he got back for it, uh, some of the ranches he'd been working for previously had been bought out by these larger corporations with more progressive methods and equipment. Claude really only wanted to do things this Wild West way, so he packed his belongings and he moved on to other things.
1: Claude started living off the land, which was really something that he had aspired to be able to do for his whole life. He started by spending weeks or months at a time camping in the wilderness of northern Nevada, where he killed deer to eat and trapped bobcats and coyotes so that he could sell their fur pelts. While he was living in the wilderness, Claude had several different run-ins with the Nevada Department of Wildlife for alleged poaching, illegal baiting, and trapping. He was only given one citation in 1976 for illegally baiting traps. And when people illegally bait traps, it causes random animals like bald eagles, to become trapped and die unnecessarily. So they really pay close attention, you know, to the practices surrounding trapping animals. Claude was also known to trap animals and kill them just for fun, really without using them for any other purpose. Some of the wardens that dealt with him said that Claude was different. He was a lot more hostile than other hunters and trappers that they interacted with typically. One time, Claude told a warden that he was, quote, "...welcome in his camp, but leave your badge outside." And the officer, of course, said, yeah, I can't do that. And then Claude said, then don't come in my camp. So that's pretty, like, to say to an officer, <laughs> like, that's just, even in a joking way, that's kind of like, okay, like, right. you just don't, you don't You're joke around like that. You're basically saying
0: exactly how you feel right there. Right, exactly. There's no guessing.
1: <laughs> yeah. So this type of disrespectful attitude and behavior towards game wardens is really uncommon. So naturally, Claude became known kind of as a jerk. Game wardens really aren't there to be the bad guy, and in general, that's not how they're perceived in the hunting and trapping community. They're really seen as protectors, and they're generally respected. The Federal Wildlife Officers Association says that, quote, conservation laws are written to aid the laws of nature in preserving wildlife and its habitat against the excesses of man and blatant human greed, end quote. And they said that Claude's killings were... Quote, that of an indiscriminate predator observing no law or nature of man. So basically, he's just not really caring about the ecosystem and like the delicate balance that has to be maintained there. He just is kind of killing these animals all willy nilly, you know, for a lack of a better term, just because he thinks, you know, I'm this wild man and this is just what I do.
0: When Claude wasn't living off the land like this wild man, he would sometimes stay with friends he had in Paradise Valley. And sometimes, even when he was living in the wilderness, people would bring him groceries, supplies, or mail. In early December of 1980, Claude, who was 30 years old at the time, moved his camp to Bull Basin, which was an area that was owned by the Bureau of Land Management. It was located on the Owyhee River in an extreme southwestern corner of Idaho. Bull Basin had already been leased out to a nearby ranch called the 45 Ranch, run by Ed Carlin and his son Don, who used this basin as a wintering area for their cattle. But Claude set up camp there. His camp was accessible by following a foot trail about three-quarters of a mile down to the rim and into the basin. It was December 26, 1980, when Ed Carlin became curious about this man who was staying on the Bull Basin that he leased. Claude had evidently driven all the cattle that belonged to 45 Ranch out of the basin and shut the gates meaning that the cattle no longer had access to the water. So basically what is this guy paying for if he can't take care of his right. cattle out here? And so Ed Carlin's basically like, "Hey Claude, uh what are you doing here?"
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, cuz imagine he's actually just he's actually just straight up camping out there. So it's like, "What are you doing?" Can you imagine like land that you're leasing and you go out there and like this guy is just posted up. It's just the most bizarre situation.
0: Basically like somebody living in your yard and uh, like setting up a camp and then when your dog comes out he just lets the dog out of the fence and it's just like, right. <laughs> I mean he's just doing whatever he wants really. So when Ed got out to Claude's camp to go confront him he noticed that Claude had killed some deer and had two bobcat pelts, both of which were illegal to have because they were out of season, and they have been out of season since before Claude set up camp there early in December. Bobcat pelts were worth about $200 at this time, which is about $640 today. So Ed goes and talks to Claude, and he basically warned him that fish and game were often in this area checking things out, so you, know, you need to be careful if you're hunting off-season animals like that. Ed commented that other ranchers might let it slide for Claude to kill one deer for food, but they wouldn't like to know that he killed more than one. Claude told Ed that he'd be ready if fish and game showed up. So according to Ed, Claude was polite but intimidating. I can picture this kind of person. You've Everyone's met somebody like this where you're like, okay, well, I don't want to make this guy angry. You know, you can just tell in the first few minutes of meeting somebody like this, like, oh, I'm not going to make you mad. So a little more than a week passes and on January 4th, 1981, Ed went back to check on his leased land. He saw other trappers there, uh, not Claude, and they were illegally poaching some sage grouse, which are considered a prize game bird by those who hunt them. So it was at this point that Ed decided to contact the Fish and Game Department. He called the game warden, Bill Pogue, at his home and told him about this sage grouse poachers, but he didn't mention Claude Dallas at all in this conversation. So Bill, the warden, told Ed that he would come around to check out the area in a day or two, but Ed told him, you know, that's going to be too long to wait, like they're taking all of these animals out. Bill said that he'd get another officer and they'd head over to 45 Ranch right away and they'd be there in the morning. So at around midnight, Bill picked up Warden Conley Elms and the two of them headed out to the ranch. When they arrived, they parked their truck and slept for a few hours, unaware that they were both living in the last moments of their lives. We're gonna get back into so so much more of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. I remember getting my first pair of glasses. I was in the third grade. My eyes were dilated, and I had come out of the exam room to pick a pair while barely being able to see a single thing. And do I even need to mention that these were incredibly ugly because once again, I couldn't see. Thanks to Warby Parker, though, things have changed. With Warby Parker, I could try out five different pairs of glasses through their home try-on
1: kit and find a pair I really loved and felt comfortable while wearing. To get started, you'll do what we did and take the quick Warby Parker quiz and order your home try-on kit. You can choose from all different sizes and colors of frames and pick your top five choices. Then, your free home try-on kit will be mailed to you and you'll have five days to fall in love with a pair. The process is super simple, and Warby Parker made the daunting task of getting glasses a whole lot of fun. There's also no obligation to buy from your home try-on kit, although I am certain that you will find a pair to fall in love with just like I did. I fell
0: in love with all of my glasses in my home try-on kit, but ultimately I went with the Shea and Burnt Lemon Tortoise since I felt like they kind of went with everything. The quality is great, and I'm still wearing them two years later. I wear my glasses anytime I'm on the computer, like right now, and love that not only are they comfortable, but they're also super cute. And Warby Parker also offers blue light filtering lenses, which are great for those of us who are
1: always on screens, which is basically everyone. Warby Parker is committed to providing exceptional vision care online and in stores, offering eyeglasses, sunglasses, eye exams, and contact lenses. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Try Warby Parker's free home try-on program. Order five pairs of glasses to try at home for free for five days. There's no obligation to buy. Ships free and includes a prepaid return shipping label. Try five pairs of glasses at home for free at warbyparker.com slash moms. Knowing that if you got rid of
0: all the subscriptions you don't need or you forgot about, you could save hundreds of dollars is very different from going through all the trouble to actually remember, find, and cancel them. That's why you need Truebill. Truebill makes it easy to get rid of those subscriptions that you signed up for, use for a day, and then just forgot to cancel. And if you think you aren't signed up for that many subscriptions, think again. On average, Truebill helps save people $720 a year. With savings like that, you could
1: use that money towards something you really want, like eating Chipotle every week for a year. If you aren't familiar with Truebill, let us explain. Truebill is the new app that helps you identify and stop paying for those subscriptions you don't really need, want, or those you simply just forgot about. Companies make canceling subscriptions hard, but Truebill makes it incredibly simple. All you have to do is link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. Truebill also provides you with their concierge who is there when you need them to cancel those unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Things like the Paramount Plus
0: subscription I've had for over six months that I didn't even realize I had. That's almost $12 a month, which means I've paid over $70 the last six months for something I've never used. And they'll just take our word for it. Take, for example, Becca L, who says, hands down the best financial app I discovered. In my first week, I opened up $187 in unused recurring subscriptions. I'm
1: obsessed. I never want
0: to manage my finances without Truebill again.
1: Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at truebill.com/moms. Go right now. truebill.com/moms. It could save you thousands a year. truebill.com/moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about this man, Claude Dallas. He's a self-proclaimed mountain man who likes to spend some time kind of living off the land, sort of. He does have people bring him groceries and mail, which isn't very rugged, but that's his style. That's the way he lives off the land. (laughs) That's how you mountain man. That's how you mountain man in Claude Dallas's world. So he is now taking up – he's set up his camp on this property that's being leased by somebody already. He's kind of causing a problem because he's now shut the gate so that this man leasing the land, his animals can't get to the water that's there. So now they've had a confrontation and one thing has led to another. And now the um, game wardens have been called out to kind of check on things. Bill Pogue had been a game warden for 15 years, but he was well-seasoned as a person of authority. Prior to becoming a game warden, Bill was a police officer and later a county sheriff, so he had years of experience enforcing the law behind him. Bill was married to a woman named Dee and the father to four children. Conley Elms was less experienced, only having three years under his belt as a game warden, but he was also an aspiring family man. He and his wife Sherry were in the process of adopting their first child, when a day at work turned into a real-life nightmare. As we said before the break, these two wardens made their way to Forty Five Ranch on the morning of January 5th, 1981 to investigate reports that there were poachers targeting sage grouse. At around sunrise on that morning, the two wardens ate breakfast with Ed Carlin and his wife and son. While eating, they talked about the poachers, but then Ed's son Don brought up that they also had been having troubles with this other person, Claude. Don told the wardens how Claude had set up camp in Bull Basin and that they had seen multiple deer carcasses and two bobcat hides in his possession. After breakfast, Don showed the wardens where the illegal grouse traps were, and then he went back home while the officers searched for the trappers that were responsible for those traps. They did find them and issue a citation, and then they headed back to 45 Ranch to talk to Don again because they wanted to hear more about this other person, who, of course, as we know, was Claude. So Don gave them directions for how to get to Claude's camp, and he warned them that Claude was known to be heavily armed and intimidating, and that he was the kind of guy who really wasn't scared of authority. So meanwhile, while the wardens are taking note of all of this, little did they know, Claude's friend Jim just showed up to the bull camp, and he had some supplies for Claude. Since Claude's camp was only accessible by walking, um, he walked Jim to the blazer at the end of the path to get the rest of the stuff out. So Jim showed up in a blazer, parked at the end of this path that's like three quarters of a mile long. So they're kind of taking trips back and forth to unload the supplies that he's bringing. So Jim stayed behind at the camp um, when Claude, when he arrived with the supplies and Claude then went and took the walk back to the car on his own. Just as Claude was arriving to the car, the two game wardens, Bill and Conley, pulled up. And exactly what happened next is up for debate, but we do have the stories of Claude and Jim to help us piece together this puzzle.
0: Claude said there was immediate trouble from the moment the two wardens pulled up in their quote-unquote government rig, is what he called it. He claims that Bill Pogue confronted him with poaching allegations right off the bat before even really speaking to him. Claude did admit to having deer carcasses, which he said was for his own food, but he did not admit to having the bobcat pelts. Claude said it was ridiculous for them to drive 150 miles just to cite him for killing deer, which he needed to survive. Meanwhile, his friend is like Instacarting him food out in the woods and, you know, traveling down with it. So he did he need it actually to survive? No, he he wanted it. So in Claude's version of this story, Bill became increasingly angry when Claude told him it was stupid for them to have come out there. Bill goes to his truck to retrieve his handcuffs and threaten to arrest and physically harm Claude. Again, this is all Claude's uh, story of what happened that day. So around the same time, Warden Conley allegedly showed his weapon, implying that he wasn't afraid to use it on Claude if things got out of hand. Claude said the wardens flanked him and walked him back to the camp. Once at Claude's camp, the wardens found a .22 pistol that he had in a shoulder holster the whole time. So they disarmed that weapon and they continued to look around. What they didn't realize is that Claude actually had another gun on him. It was on a hip holster under his coat. The wardens had also disarmed Claude's friend Jim. They took the bullets out from his gun and they handed the empty pistol back to him. Bill Probe then instructed his younger colleague to search Claude's tent, which Claude objected to because he said the officers didn't have a warrant. But Bill silenced him by saying that they didn't need a warrant. So Conley searches the tent and he finds two bobcat pelts and 300 pounds of illegally poached deer meat. So for reference, the average deer provides about two pounds of meat, which means that Claude had killed at least six deer. In 2021, you could only legally kill one deer in Idaho. We're not sure of the limits in the 80s, but it probably wasn't six. So Claude said that when Conley emerged from this tent with the two pelts, Bill becomes irate again and starts wanting to fight Claude. Bill allegedly told Claude he could, quote, go easy or hard, end quote. Bill was going to arrest Claude and confiscate the bobcat hides, but Claude kept begging him to just be sighted instead. He said he couldn't leave the camp because he had two mules that needed to be taken care of. Bill allegedly replied that he guessed Claude was going to choose the hard way, and Claude took that to mean that Bill was going to kill him. So at some point in this confusion, Bill grabbed his gun, which caused Claude to react by drawing the 357 Magnum revolver that he'd been hiding on his hip the whole time. So Bill and Claude each fired one shot at the same time, and then Claude fired his gun a second time. Claude said that at the moment that he fired that second shot, he saw Warden Conley out of the corner of his eye reaching for his gun, so Claude turns and he shoots Conley as well. He then fired four more times at Bill, who was still alive on the ground, trying desperately to fire back at Claude. Claude shot Conley two more times with a pistol and then went into his tent to get his rifle. He returned to the two wardens and fired a final shot with the rifle into each of their heads. Bill Progue was on his back when he was shot,
1: while Conley Elms was face down. The version of the story that Claude's friend Jim Stevens gave was pretty consistent with the one that Claude told, but had a few differences. He confirmed that Claude did meet Bill and Conley down at his blazer and that they all walked back down to the camp together. Jim said he stood off to the side and looked at the river while the wardens questioned Claude and searched the camp, finding these illegal pelts and all this meat. Jim said that he was actually embarrassed that his friend Claude had been caught poaching, which is why he was just standing there minding his own business and staring at the river, which I totally Jim, I understand where Jim right? is coming from because if I was that if you know, you just show up to bring this guy groceries and the next thing you know he's got authorities there and he's getting busted for having illegally, you know, illegal things, it's like that is such an awkward situation. I would just be like, oh my gosh, of course I would show up here at this time. Like, you know, Absolutely. when this is happening. Like, that's just how things go for me. You know, I'd be right. like, how did I end up in the middle of this? But yeah, so Jim says that he was just trying to mind his own business and stand off to the side and let them do their job. Jim said that Bill was firm while he was speaking with Claude, but as the conversation escalated and Claude refused to comply with Bill's request, Bill did start to become more and more irritated and his tone became more like that of a drill instructor, but Jim said that he never heard Bill yell. Jim said that he heard Claude ask if he would be arrested, but before either warden could answer, Jim then heard Bill shout, oh no, and he heard the sound of six shots being fired. Jim looked toward the shots and saw Bill backing away from Claude while trying to reach for his gun. He said that Bill had smoke coming out of his chest as he was falling to the ground, and his gun ended up falling on the ground as well, but it was about eight inches away from his hand. Jim said the next thing he saw was Claude turning the gun on Conley, who was holding the bobcat pelts in his hand outside the tent. When the shooting was over, Jim asked Claude why he just murdered these two officers. And Claude said that he swore he would never be arrested again. And Bill had the handcuffs out and ready to go, so he shot them. Jim told Claude how serious this was that, you know, he had just committed first degree murder. Yeah. And Claude apologized for involving Jim, but also begged him for help in getting rid of the bodies. Following the murders, Jim and Claude's stories are pretty much the same from this point. They put Bill's body on a mule, and they transported him up the rim of the basin to Jim's blazer. Jim and Claude then went back to the camp and put Conley's body on the mule, but it slipped off and they couldn't lift him back up onto it because he was a heavier guy. He weighed over 300 pounds. So they chose to drag Conley's body face down behind the mule to the nearby river and dumped him in. Jim and Claude burned some evidence and then they went back to Jim's blazer and loaded Bill's body. Supposedly, they left his legs hanging out of the back of the blazer and drove all the way to Claude's friend George's place in Paradise Hills, Nevada. Claude borrowed George's truck and drove off to the desert. And Jim stayed back at George's, and then when Claude came back hours later, he no longer had Bill's body with him. Jim went to the police, and George drove Claude to Sand Pass Road, and then Claude, quote, disappeared on foot into the desert.
0: Man. So after hearing Jim's story, authorities split up and started focusing on three things simultaneously. Number one, they were looking for Claude. Number two, they wanted to find Conley's body. And number three, find Bill's body. They searched for Claude via ground search, bloodhounds, ATVs, aircrafts, and really any way you can imagine. They specifically looked in the area and direction that Jim had told them that Claude had drove off in, but they also didn't find any sign of Bill's body that Claude allegedly took with him. Back at Bull Camp, they found Conley's body in the South Fork of the river, about a quarter mile downstream from where the murders took place. Once Conley's body was found, an arrest warrant was issued for Claude on two counts of first-degree murder— The FBI also issued a fugitive warrant, and from there, a nationwide manhunt ensued. It was released to the media that Claude was armed and dangerous and that he was an experienced outdoorsman who might be hard to find in a remote, rugged area. For months, investigators searched for the body of Bill Pogue using tracking dogs, airplanes, horses, and more, but they were unable to find his body. They spent over a year looking for Claude and offered a $20,000 reward that was raised with donations from sporting clubs, conservation groups, hunting groups, and trapping groups. Many tips from all across America came in, but none that led to the capture of Claude Dallas. They had no clue that Claude had been hired on at a steel mill in South Dakota a few weeks after the murders. He actually worked there for two months before one of his coworkers saw his face on a wanted poster and called the FBI. But Claude was gone before they even arrived. Jim was never charged with any crime related to helping Claude dispose of the bodies because authorities said they realized that Jim really didn't have much choice in the matter. At that moment, he was either to help Claude or risk being murdered too. Totally agree. I was very happy to get to this part of the story to see that Jim didn't get anything because he was just like literally yeah. wanting nothing to do with any of this. But you can see how, like, sometimes people can be charged, like, as an accessory. For sure. Like, yeah. Did what he did and was like, okay, now I call the police. I'm not I'm not doing any more.
1: Right. And especially it's scary when, like, other than the two officers, those two men were the only two out there. So it, like, doesn't – it's really, like, Jim's word against Claude's unless, like you said, he took that action to go to the police first. Because otherwise, if he hadn't, then he looks just as guilty whether or not he was involved oh, you know, in the actual crime.
0: Yeah. So a reenactment of the murder was put together to see if they could confirm more details on how the shooting actually went down. So they found out that what most likely happened was that Conley went inside this tent and found the bobcat hides. He comes out of the tent and Bill looks towards Conley while Claude reaches for his concealed gun and starts firing. Within four to six seconds, Claude had shot each man twice. Conley didn't even have time to grab his gun and he dropped the hides and ducked after being shot. Both men fell to the ground, wounded, and then Claude went into his tent, grabbed the rifle, and shot both men in the head. An autopsy showed that the first bullet hit Conley in the back, just below the right shoulder. The second bullet hit him in the right side toward the front of his chest, and this shot hit him as he fell to the ground. And when Conley was shot for a third time, this time in the head, he was actually still alive.
1: Finally, in mid-April of 1982, the FBI received an anonymous but credible tip that Claude was living in Paradise Valley, Nevada, where he had previously lived in his early cowboy days. Claude was living in a trailer with a fence builder named Craig Carver, but he had only just been there for a few days. At around 5.40 p.m. on April 18th, officers surrounded the trailer to arrest Claude. They even had a helicopter in the sky above the trailer. Claude was, of course, heavily armed, and he burst through a window, jumped into a vehicle, and drove through a barbed wire fence, sending police on a high-speed chase across the desert. When authorities finally caught up with him, Claude met them with gunfire, but officers fired back and struck Claude in the foot. At 6.15 p.m., he finally surrendered, and he was arrested and flown to the hospital to treat his gunshot wound before he was taken to jail. Federal charges of unlawful flight were dropped so that Claude could be turned over to the state authorities and face two counts of first-degree murder, two counts of using a firearm in the commission of a felony, one count of concealing evidence for hiding the bodies, and one count of resisting arrest. Now that Claude had finally been captured, they hoped that he would tell them where he disposed of Bill's body, but Claude refused to talk to them. On September 15, 1982, Claude went to trial for the first-degree murders of Bill and Conley. The trial was held in Canyon County after it was moved due to pre-trial publicity. For his trial, Claude trimmed his beard and got a haircut that was shorter, and he was wearing rimless glasses. A group of supporters of Claude who called themselves "quote the Dallas Cheerleaders" were also at the trial. I don't know why that just made my skin crawl. It makes like- me so angry. Like, why? Oh my gosh, don't do this. People, do not do this. This was a group of women that did not know Claude personally. They were just fans of his. And as I said, they called themselves the Dallas cheerleaders. They were in the courtroom cheering for him. According to retired state game manager Jerry Thiessen, quote, The guy had charisma. The way he carried himself, one could almost disbelieve anything others said against him. Dallas had a psychological effect. He flirted with the jury. He flirted with his fan club. Dallas had an aura about him. He was an actor who had an excellent attorney who knew how to tilt perspective enough to bring out the heartthrob reaction, end quote, which is crazy. And it took me a minute when I was reading about this case to realize that he was actually relatively young when this happened. He was only in his 30s. Yeah. So I guess he just had a fan club. I don't know. You. This is not the first time you've heard about that, about people who have no. committed a crime that are in prison having a fan club or having people write to them like a prison pen pal in a romantic type of way it definitely happens but um
0: but you have to evaluate yeah. your life if you're like i'm going to court for an alleged murders as a cheerleader like that is you gotta, yeah, you gotta think little, some things
1: through for sure and especially if you don't know him it's one thing if you know him and truly believe he's innocent right but if you don't even know him like that's a little over the top that just seems disrespectful to the whole the for whole sure. thing yeah for sure So the jury of 12 was instructed to consider lesser offenses of second-degree murder and voluntary manslaughter in addition to the charge of first-degree murder. If Claude was found guilty of murder in the first degree, he could face the death penalty.
0: Prosecutors alleged simply that Claude shot the wardens with no provocation because they were going to arrest him. They said neither officer even had a chance to return fire. Under Idaho law, the wardens were legally allowed to search Claude's tent without a warrant, and they did have every right to arrest him. Jim was the star witness for the prosecution. They weren't allowed, however, to bring up much of the evidence in the trial. For instance, they weren't allowed to bring up the draft incident where Claude was arrested wrongfully, or his history of poaching, or his anti-government feelings. They also couldn't mention that after they captured Claude, they found two books on self-defense and his belongings. The defense said there was no premeditation and malice involved in the murder, only provocation and passion, which I don't think I've ever heard of that passion like not in a like romantic sense i guess so the defense claimed that claude was a quiet peace-loving and polite man who acted in self-defense against the quote aggressive and violent game wardens end quote i don't think you're peace-loving as soon as people are like yeah that guy's kind of a jerk about everything and he doesn't like authority (laughs) i I, that that seems to go (laughs) against gets that just a little bit so they alleged that Bill knew that Claude kept this gun on his hip, but ignored it because he was looking for a confrontation. Prosecutors obviously disagree with this notion that an officer would allow Claude to remain in possession of a loaded firearm if he knew about it. They had already taken the bullets from Jim. They had already had Claude put his other weapon down. Why on earth would they put themselves in danger and let him keep this one gun?
1: Yeah, that just...
0: That is wild. No,
1: that's not a thing. No. Yeah. The
0: defense had multiple people testify that Bill was a violent and aggressive officer. Normally, this kind of character evidence wouldn't be admissible, but because Claude's defense was self-defense, it was allowed to show that it's possible that Bill had instigated everything. Many of the examples given about Bill's alleged bad temper were proven false, but really the damage was already done with the jury. Prosecutors tried to counter the defense's witness testimony with their own witnesses that stated that Bill was a firm but fair cop who remained professional even when confronting people who were in violation of the law. Retired state game manager Jerry Thiessen said, quote, "...the circumstances of the whole trial were different and cruel in that setting, especially when Bill was put on trial as a bully game warden. It was all fabricated. He was always polite and to the point. He was a well-respected conservation officer and a leader." He was dedicated and never watched the clock when it came to wildlife he cared about. He drove all night when he heard about the sage-grouse being poached. He was an ornithologist and drew pictures of birds. He had a kind heart and a real soft spot for children. He spent his life doing things that were important to do, end quote.
1: When Claude was asked during his trial why he didn't go to the authorities, he claimed it was because the authorities in the area had a lynch mob attitude and it would have been his funeral, essentially. He said that he thought the best thing to do at the time was to just dispose of the bodies, and he still believed that that was his best course of action to that day. Claude talked about how he disposed of each victim, including revealing for the first time where Bill's remains could be found. Bill's wife, who was in the courtroom, was happy to finally be able to learn where her husband was. Within just two hours of Claude testifying to the location of Bill's remains, authorities did find his body right where Claude said that it would be prosecutors brought up many points to challenge Claude's story. For example, Claude said that Warden Conley Elms had reached inside his coat and brandished his weapon, but investigators said that wouldn't have been possible because Conley was found wearing a sweater that was actually covering his holster completely, so simply moving his jacket back wouldn't have revealed anything to Claude. Prosecutors also pointed out that Claude's story about Bill firing a shot at him couldn't even be proven since Claude apparently had buried Bill's gun and couldn't remember where, which made it impossible to verify whether or not a shot was ever fired from it. The jury deliberated for over a week before coming to their decision on October 20th. Claude was found guilty on two counts of voluntary manslaughter, two counts of using a firearm, and one count of concealing evidence. He was acquitted of resisting an officer. The foreman later said that the jury probably would have acquitted Claude if it weren't for the two shots he fired with the rifle after the wardens had already been shot multiple times with the pistol. It's important to note that many people, including Claude, think that because he wasn't found guilty of murder, that it means that the jury determined that he had acted in self-defense. But legally speaking, this is not true. So if the jury legally thought that Claude had acted in self-defense, they would have acquitted him of this crime because self-defense is a defense for a justifiable homicide. And even though the jury members have said to the media that they thought he acted in self-defense, it isn't legally true and... Basically, when they're saying that, it's kind of like they're impeaching their own verdict because basically if they're saying, like, yeah, we thought he acted in self-defense, then why didn't they just acquit him of the crime? So it's kind of like a little weird, like, what did the jury actually believe situation.
0: So attorneys for both sides were really upset by this verdict. Prosecutor Clayton Anderson told the Lewiston Morning Tribune that Claude's testimony and personality had influenced the jury more than the actual evidence. He said, quote, I think Claude Dallas in the courtroom and Claude Dallas in the mountains are two very different persons, end quote. Deputy Attorney General Michael Kennedy later told the Associated Press, quote, he's attractive. He comes across with this warm, sensitive personality and has the friends to back it up until you've actually sat through a trial and seen the impact of a person like Claude on the jury. It's just hard to describe, end quote. And of course, Bill and Conley's families were upset as well. Both of their widows didn't give a comment to the media, but Bill's brother Ed did. He said the verdicts were, quote, the biggest miscarriage of justice I've ever seen. I just can't believe it. I think the jury was ignorant. They couldn't separate evidence from fabrication, end quote. Because the verdict was for manslaughter and not murder, Claude was released on a $100,000 bond pending his sentencing. Following the verdict, jurors were threatened and verbally abused by members of the public. Judge Edward Lodge said that someone tried to intimidate him. On January 4th, 1983, Claude's sentencing hearing was held. He showed up to court wearing a Western-style shirt, a handkerchief tied around his neck, blue jeans, and cowboy boots. The prosecution asked the judge to sentence Claude to the maximum of 50 years. They said while Bill was a stern officer, he was not, quote, violent and aggressive, like some people had testified during this trial. The defense asked the judge to sentence Claude to probation, They said he had no criminal history and was known to be a, quote, nonviolent, peace-loving, hardworking, loyal person, end quote. When asked if he had anything to say, Clyde told the judge he, quote, reacted the only way I could under the circumstances. I do regret what took place at Bull Camp in January of 1981, end quote. Lodge sentenced Clyde to 20 years for voluntary manslaughter, 10 years for using a firearm, and six months for concealing or destroying evidence, all to be served consecutively. That meant that Claude would serve 30 years in prison, although he would be eligible for parole in 10 years. Lodge added that he doubted Claude would even receive early parole because of the public opinion on the case. One juror said that she thought Claude's sentence was too harsh. Another said the sentence put Claude in a quote-unquote bad position. She said, I feel terrible. I think it was unfair. Claude served his time in the Idaho State Prison, which is near Boise. According to Warden A.J. Arafe, Claude was a, quote, good prisoner, awful quiet, does what he's supposed to do, wants to work, end quote. And he said he wouldn't mind having a prison full of Claude Dallases. Wow. However, prison officials were very cautious with Claude. They knew he didn't like authority, and he had the ability to elude authorities and live off the land. So, in November of 1985, the Idaho Supreme Court affirmed Claude's convictions and sentence. They ruled that, quote, even assuming that the officers were overly aggressive in their behavior towards Claude, this did not give him the right to shoot them. The proper place for challenging the propriety of an officer's conduct is in a courtroom, not in a gun battle, end quote. The Supreme Court added that the trial judge had been very lenient with what he allowed the defense to present as evidence. For example, the judge probably shouldn't have allowed testimony about how Bill Pogue was aggressive and hostile. But if you think that's where the story ends, oh no, Cod still has more tricks up his sleeves that we're going to get into after one last break to hear word from this week's sponsors.
1: It's tax season, which means everything is a little busier, including the post office. If you want to skip the lines and trip all together at the post office, do what we did and sign up for Stamps.com. We order our food online, our clothes. Why stop there when you can also handle all of your small business shipping needs with Stamps.com? Every month we send out Patreon perks and cards to Patreon
0: supporters. Having Stamps.com makes this so much easier. I'm able to print stamps and postage for anywhere in the world from my computer and printer. Not only is the convenience factor huge when it comes from running our small business, but we can get discounts not available anywhere else like up to 40% off
1: USPS rates and 76% off UPS. So whether you're sending off invoices, running your Etsy shop, or if you have a full-blown warehouse that's shipping out orders, Stamps.com will make your life so much easier. All you need to get started is a computer and a standard printer. That's it. You can be up and running in just a few minutes printing official postage for any letter, any package, anywhere you want to send it. Stop overpaying for shipping with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code MOMSANDMURDER for a special
0: offer that includes a four-week trial, free postage, and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click the microphone at the top of the page, and enter code MOMSANDMURDER. Getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit is another reason banking with Capital One is one of the easiest decisions in the history of decisions, even
1: easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC.
0: Are you ready to revolutionize the way you enjoy food and essentials at home? Introducing DashPass from DoorDash, your ultimate ticket to convenience and savings. With DashPass, you gain exclusive access to unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders, along with members-only deals and discounts that will leave your wallet smiling. Whether you're craving the flavors of your favorite restaurants, need groceries from across town, or anything in between, Dash Pass ensures that everything you need is just a few clicks away, delivered right to your door. With Dash Pass, not only do you enjoy $0 delivery fees, but you'll also benefit from lower service fees on eligible orders, making it the most affordable way to satisfy your cravings and stock up on essentials from your local favorites. What I really love is how quickly Dash Pass pays for itself. On average, it takes just two orders, which makes it a no brainer investment for your budget. And as if that weren't enough, Dash Pass grants you special access to exclusive
1: Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about this story of Claude Dallas and how he has murdered two game wardens um, in cold blood after they started questioning him about some illegal meat and animal pelts that he had at his camp. So he is now serving time at the Idaho State Penitentiary for this crime. On Easter Sunday in 1986, 36-year-old Claude had a visitor at the penitentiary. It was his longtime friend Geneva. She and her husband had known Claude for a while. This visit took place in the administration building, which was within a fenced area of the prison, but it was actually in a separate building that the inmates had to walk outside to get to. And that's when Claude was struck with the idea to escape from the prison. At around 8 p.m., shortly after his friend Geneva left, a large group of prisoners left the visiting area together and went back to the compound. Each prisoner had to check in with the guard over an intercom, and somebody gave Claude's name and inmate number, but then when it was time for the bedtime headcount at 10 p.m., Claude was nowhere to be found. As it turned out, nobody was really all that shocked that Claude had escaped the prison, Warden A.J. Arev said even Claude's lawyer seemed like he was pretty unfazed and just didn't it wasn't shocking what? news whenever he found out that his client escaped prison. Yeah, like and if that was the case, I you would think they would have a little better eyes on him, right? If they right. actually thought like this guy could pull something off. Yeah. <laughs> but that's if crazy surprised. to me that they were just like, Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're like, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, he's he's gone. So once the news broke that Claude was missing, sheriff's investigators brought bloodhounds in to search for him. They were able to follow his trail all the way to a stool inside of a tavern called The Bar, and this was one of Claude's old known hangouts. The dogs, however, lost the scent when they tried to follow it outside of the bar. But an anonymous tip came in that Claude was actually at a home about a mile from the bar, so the officers went there and the bloodhounds picked up his scent again, and they were able to follow it for three miles through the desert to U.S. Highway 95 where they lost it which made it seem likely that Claude had, you know, walked there and then been picked up by somebody in a car. So for the next year, authorities continue to search for Claude. (laughs) To this day, it's still not completely clear exactly how Claude escaped from the prison. Investigators said that Claude never returned to the prison after that visit that he had with Geneva, but instead he slipped into a blind spot in the visitor's area, and then he used bolt cutters to cut through two fences before he was free. Someone at the prison then posed as Claude when it was time to check in over the intercom. But investigators were still suspicious of this story, because prison officials had given, you know, this bolt cutter through two fences story, but the investigators actually found no evidence to prove that that even happened. In fact... What they found strange at the prison was that in each fence that Claude had to escape through, there was a perfectly cut out triangle, which seemed to them like that would be a silly thing for him to do if you're trying to, like, quickly escape from prison, right? You're not going to cut shapes specifically into the fence. Unless, although, who knows – yeah, but what it, who knows how long he had been planning this. Maybe he came up with the idea and was like, the easiest hole for me to get through this fence is going to be a triangle. Maybe he had a plan for that. True, who knows? True. You never know when people plan to escape prison. You know, maybe it's not something he just did on the, you know, on the fly. Maybe he actually planned it that way. Who knows? But additionally, it had also been raining a lot around the time Claude escaped and there was a field of dirt just outside of these fences, but they didn't find any tracks leading away from the prison that would have been in like mud or something right. like that. So they didn't you know there was no evidence that anybody had left from that fence and left you know ran through the field there was no bolt cutters that were ever found to even suggest that those were used in the escape but the investigators did find claude's hat and glasses that were inside their case in the parking lot about 350 feet from the fences that he escaped from the investigators looked into claude's friend geneva of course as a possible accomplice in the escape but they didn't even find any link there Finally, two of the prison guards had conducted perimeter checks after the time Claude went missing, and neither one of them reported any holes in any of the fences, which I guess you could miss if it's dark outside and you're not like pay- you're not looking for holes in fences. Right. I can also see how you would just miss that if you're just walking by. I'm not the most observant person. If I'm not specifically looking for something, I will right. 100% just walk right past it. Yeah,
0: I didn't think anything of that either, unless part of their job was like, check for holes in fences every night, and then right. you know, exactly. shame on you. <laughs>
1: At 10.30 p.m., there was also a shift change, and dozens of officers walked right by the first fence, and as I said again, none of them noticed or reported any holes in the fences either. The person who actually did report seeing the holes in the fence was Captain Jerry Redman, which is kind of strange because a captain typically is not the one doing a perimeter check in the first place, but what's even more strange is that he didn't actually report the holes in the fence until he left the prison and already was at Hmm. home that night. Hmm. So due to all of this, the investigators determined that Claude must have walked out the door of the visitor center in a group and just simply went unnoticed. They also surmised that the prison officials cut the holes in the fence to make it seem like Claude had escaped and not that he got away due to anybody at the prison's negligence, which I can kind of see why they might kind of take that angle. Yeah,
0: for sure. So a month after Claude's escape, the prison brought in a former warden to investigate how he was able to get out. Upon completing this investigation, George Sumner said he agreed with law enforcement that Claude most likely walked right out the door with a group of visitors. George also said that the visitation process provided way too much opportunity for escapes, and he suggested that the prison reform their visitation procedures and tighten up their security moving forward. The Idaho governor then got involved and questioned the competence of the prison staff and said that they needed to make security improvements. He allocated $2 million to help build a guard booth at the visitor Center, tighten security on the visiting process and inmate counting system, and put razor wires on fences. Although changes were made, Sumner's report was actually lost, and rumors of a cover-up continued for years. But nothing was actually done again until the early 2000s. More on this later. Meanwhile, authorities were tracing Claude's movements, but they were always too late to arrest him. Claude really traveled all over, often staying with friends in Oregon, South Dakota, and Mexico. 47 days after escaping, Claude was put on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted Fugitives. A $15,000 reward was announced, and 3,000 Wanted posters were issued. So while there's this massive manhunt for Claude underway, authorities faced an indifference by some members of the public to even help capture Claude. According to one newspaper, quote, Lawmen called Claude a cold-blooded killer, but some people praised him as exemplifying the spirit of the Old West, end quote. Claude had become somewhat of a folk hero to some. They felt like he was, quote, an incarnation of the Old West rugged individual standing up for his rights against a dangerous meddling bureaucracy, end quote. These people actually believed that Claude was a, quote, hero who defied a system that placed rules above the divine right of a man to live off the land, end quote. Claude was such a polarizing figure that two books, a song, and a CBS TV movie were made about him. But if there's one good thing about Claude, it's that he actually didn't like this notoriety. He wanted to be left alone. Owyhee County citizens didn't think Claude was a folk hero at all. In fact, 60% of them wanted Claude found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to death.
1: On March 8, 1987, at around 3 o'clock p.m., authorities arrested Claude as he left a convenience store in Riverside, California, which is about 50 miles east of downtown L.A., it was three days before his 37th birthday, and he'd purchased a loaf of bread and some peanut butter. He was unarmed and denied being Claude. He said that his name was actually Al Shrank, but after taking him to the jail, fingerprints verified that he actually was Claude. Claude had been staying in a motel room across the street from this store, and he was using this alias, Al Shrank, which... I don't know where he came up with that name, but that's like one of the worst ones I've ever heard. Thank you. Like one of the worst aliases. (laughs) So he also um, took steps to change his appearance because the picture that the media had of him showed him with a beard and glasses. So Claude cut his hair short and he shaved off his beard, leaving only a mustache. He switched to wearing contacts and he actually paid $3,000 for plastic surgery in Mexico, where he had his chin lengthened and his nose made smaller. Claude went to trial for the prison escape. He was facing an additional five years, I guess, for that. Of course, he's already supposed to be serving time for murder. So that's a, a whole different thing. His defense was what was known as necessity or duress. And basically, that means that the defendant had to break the law in order to survive. So the defense said that Claude had to escape. Otherwise, the guards would have killed him. And they said that they wanted him dead because they felt that he had received too light of a sentence in his murder trial. Claude testified that he would have been killed by prison guards if he didn't escape. He said, quote, by the end of December 1983, I was convinced that if they had the opportunity to rid themselves of me, they'd jump on it. Claude said prison guards kept his picture in their watchtower and used it as target practice at the firing range. I just obviously don't think that's true. But right. Maybe he wasn't the most light guy at the prison, but for something tells me they were not using his picture as target I know. practice. A former inmate named Richard Lambert testified for the defense that he heard Lieutenant Wayne Nimmo say on multiple occasions that he would kill Claude if he had the chance. Nimmo said Claude should have gotten the death penalty and didn't deserve to be alive. Other inmates and former prison employees testified that everybody in the prison knew that a riot was going to be happening soon and prison guards allegedly planned to kill Claude during this riot. In the end, Claude was actually acquitted on all charges, making him the first person in Idaho to ever be acquitted after a prison escape.
0: Uh, uh. I don't understand
1: how you can ever escape prison and get away with it. Like, there isn't, it's not a matter of like proving that you escaped or not. Like, he obviously escaped from prison when he was supposed to be in prison. So. That's mind-blowing to me that he got no punishment for that. And he was
0: out for over a year. I know. Well, it feels like, okay, if you were under duress or whatever, it feels like had he gone to his attorney and said, listen, they wanted to kill me. I'm out. I'm happy to. Right. Se- can you get me to a different prison or whatever? Then, okay, then I could, that would make sense to me. But how the heck was he acquitted for this?
1: This absolutely infuriated me. Like, I don't get that at all. It does yeah, not it makes make no sense. sense. It makes no sense. No. Um, so as I said, the only consequence he faced was losing one year of good behavior credit, I guess, because he was gone for a year. So he has to make that year Boo-hoo. up and look good behavior, you know, time. For, yeah, exactly. Um, and he was fined just $159, and that was to cover the uh, fences that had holes in them. That
0: he probably didn't even do. Exactly. I mean, I think he should pay more. I'm not trying to say. <laughs>
1: that's cheap for repairing fences (laughs) yeah it sounded like
0: i'm going on both sides there but no like obviously he should have i whatever he should have paid anything
1: he was probably oh right just mad yeah no i agree totally agree so bill pogue's daughter jody wasn't surprised by the acquittal in fact when the jury was still deliberating she told the bulletin quote claude knows how to talk to the jury and manipulate people it wouldn't surprise me if he gets off end quote Jerry Conley, Idaho Fish and Game Director, said this trial was a repeat of Claude's murder trial. He said, quote, Claude says, I'm an innocent little guy who's being picked on by these big fat bullies. So making fun of him, yeah. basically, you know, that they obviously think he's a terrible person who, you know, belongs in yeah. prison. <laughs> so according to the Desert News, even Claude's attorney was surprised by the verdict. Following his acquittal, Claude was transferred out of state to serve the remainder of his sentence in other prisons. He spent time in multiple different state prisons in Nebraska and New Mexico, and the last 10 years were served in Kansas. In the early 1990s
0: and 2000s, Claude was eligible for parole, but he was denied. In the early 2000s, the county sheriff, state attorney general, and Department of Corrections ordered a reinvestigation into how Claude escaped. Many people questioned why an investigation was being conducted after so many years, The investigative team said that they wanted to find out the truth and wanted to offer transparency to let people know that the Department of Corrections was no longer being, quote, run by good old boys, end quote, and they wanted people to know that they took corruption seriously. In the end, though, there wasn't enough evidence to prove a cover-up had occurred, but investigators said they had a gut feeling it was a cover-up. The evidence really just didn't fit the prison official's story. The supervisor of the reinvestigation, Mike Dillon, told the Idaho statesman, quote, I am not at all satisfied that we have got the whole story. But at the same time, we couldn't come up with anything other than a lot of smoke. I remain skeptical, end quote. Gary Doolin helped investigate the case. He said, quote, I think Claude Dallas walked out on Easter Sunday. We're asked to believe that instead of a slit, he cut two perfect triangles. Then, after he's free, he runs across a fresh dirt field after a rainstorm, leaving no tracks. He keeps the bolt cutters or the wire snips, but loses his hat and his glasses fall off his face and into a glasses case in the parking lot, 350 feet away. It's bizarre, end quote. That guy was not buying anything. So prison employee George Bear was seen carrying a bolt cutter on the night that Claude escaped. He was a prison armorer and was in charge of keeping weapons and tools locked up. During the reinvestigation, he took and passed a polygraph test. He told investigators that on the night of Claude's escape, he was asked to get bolt cutters so the padlock on Claude's workshop locker could be cut. Baird said he can't remember which corrections officer ended up getting the cutters, but he'd be pretty sure that the person used the cutters to cut the fence. Baird told the Idaho Statesman, quote, I have believed for 20 years Claude Dallas walked out our front door. Somebody didn't want embarrassment. Claude Dallas was a high-profile offender. Claude Dallas committed a hideous crime against people in law enforcement and angered a great big community, end quote. Baird adds that he thinks that somebody, somewhere up the command, ordered a subordinate to cut the fence to cover up their incompetence. Of course, Claude could say what really happened, but he's always refused to talk to the media. So where is everyone today? On February 6, 2005, 54-year-old Claude was released from prison on good behavior after serving 22 years. Following his release, Claude didn't speak to the media. He really did not want the fame he had received over the years. He just wanted to live a quiet life. There's not a lot known about Claude after he left prison. However, we know that he did get a driver's license in Washington, and he's been spotted in the Pacific Northwest since then, working odd jobs like being a shuttle driver for river trips. Bill Pogue and Conley Elms' wives both started working in the law enforcement field following their husband's murders. Conley's wife, Sherry, started working for the Idaho Department of Law Enforcement, and Bill's wife, Dee, became the volunteer coordinator for the Boise Police Department. At the time of the murders, Conley and Sherry were in the process of adopting a little girl named Aaliyah from India. She was officially adopted six months after Conley's murder. Sherry told the Desert News, quote, she gave me a reason to live. She was a continuation of our life together, end quote.
1: This is just a super sad story for the families of the game wardens. And stuff like this just uh, – it's just – It's so awful because you think about these guys just going to work. And like it said before, the job of a game warden, typically you're not encountering people like this that are angry or that you have to be afraid of. It's usually situations where you just go and make contact with people. You're just kind of seeing what everybody's up to. It's not a job – You know, like Bill was a retired police officer. Like going into being a game warden is not a job that you go into because it's risky or that it's something exciting. It's something that you do like maybe in retirement. It's not usually something that you have to worry about encountering somebody like this. And so it's really sad to think that they just went to work that day thinking they're going to just investigate, you know, they're looking out for nature. They're going to just investigate, you know, whatever. And that it ended up this way or that it could turn this way for them is just so – Horrifying to think about. Yeah,
0: I just can't get over the verdict in either of his trials. They just, it blows me away. I would, I wish these kind of things were taped back then so we could see them because I just don't understand, you know, when they talk about the jury, the effect he had on the jury. Because to me, I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't get it based on what we are, you know, talking about, what we've seen, what we've read. It doesn't make sense to me. Like, the facts are just wild. The fact that the judge let so many things in there that really shouldn't have been. It almost seemed like Bill was more on trial than Claude was at times. And that that could have really changed the um, entire verdict. For sure.
1: Okay, Melissa. I think we have had a very long episode here, but we have a little time for a little last thing yes. before we go.
0: We'll do warp, suite, okay. warp speed warp um, last thing before we go. Warp
1: speed yes. last thing before we go. Okay, Melissa, what are we doing this week? Again, I don't know,
0: but I think the idea was <laughs> if we went to Idaho – uh, or we've lived out as mountain women. You called yourself a cave woman, but um, let's call ourselves mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like a step up. Um, if you went to Idaho, what's one thing you would bring if you went to Idaho, Mandy? You say yours. I'll say mine. Sour cream. Oh, that was good. I said a good <laughs> appetite because I would eat potatoes in every form. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. I need to Ooh, bring sour my sour cream and some ketchup or something. Like that's all I need in Idaho because I'm not gonna do anything except eat every kind of potato possible. In every <laughs> yeah, every
0: fashion. I love that. That's great. Okay, so one food. If you could only bring one food into your cave woman
1: building, fortune. One food into my cave woman lifestyle. Yes. I know you're gonna laugh. Honestly, it would probably be chicken.
0: No, I think that's a fair one. I think that's a fair one.
1: Yeah. I eat chicken a lot. I think if I had to only pick one thing, it would just be chicken straight up. Do you know what I
0: eat a lot? Just chicken with cheese on it and sour cream. That's like –
1: Yeah. Oh, my gosh. I do stuff like that all the time. My favorite meal is just white rice with ground chicken and like – Barely any seasoning. I don't know. My husband says it looks like prison food. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's delicious. It's my favorite thing.
0: (laughs) Oh, it does sound good, though. Okay, mine would be, well, this isn't a food, but Cherry Coke Zero. It's basically a novelty at this point. Mm. If you can find Cherry Coke Zero. It is. I found it the other day. I love it. I
1: love it. Always get it when I see right? it. Right,
0: but you can never find it. And I'm always sending my husband, he goes, yeah. You know, they're not going to have it. I'm like, But I need you to check. <laughs> I need you to you just, just make to sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, next uh, podcast or movie. What would your comfort thing be that you could indulge in every day in your cave woman, mountain woman lifestyle?
1: I just want my Spotify playlist. I don't want to have a podcast or a book or a TV show. I just want to have music.
0: You want to have your music? Okay. That's fair. Yes, that's it. I'm going to also yeah. go podcast, but I'm going to say watch what crap because they crack me up. We were just talking ah. the other day about, um, uh, what was it, um, Summer House. They do like Summer House recaps and they do all the voices and they're so, so funny and I just love them. Like they are instantly put me in a good mood to listen to. So that would be mine. Um, and Mandy, if you could bring a character from a show or movie, not a real person in your life to help you. In your living off the land in your cave mountain woman life um, aesthetic, who would it be?
1: I'm gonna bring Maui from Moana because he's. I was entertaining not expecting functional. There you go. Can <laughs> do things. Yeah. I like that. entertaining and helpful and useful, capable rather.
0: Crap! I should have thought of an entertaining person. I'm gonna be so bored.
1: You have to have entertainment. You have to at <sighs> Me least of enjoy all people. the person you're with. I. I almost said I would take you, but then yeah. I was like, gosh, you can't even be in a hotel room with me for two days. So I don't think but I would But it has take nothing on, to do with on. you.
0: My friend wanted to do like a yeah. girl's <laughs> trip thing for her fortieth birthday. And I was like, I gotta tell you up front, I cannot share a room with you. I've I I've, can't do that, yeah. <laughs> I've learned that about myself. It has nothing to do with anybody else, but I can't do it. <laughs> and that says a lot about me more than anybody I've ever been around.
1: No, and I totally get that too. I definitely prefer to just have my own space and not you're just so it's, peppy it's
0: in the weird. mornings, Mandy. I, it's it's wild yeah. it is wild <laughs> i've never heard anybody listening to yeah. <laughs> like rap that early in the mornings i'm like what is happening in there <laughs> reggae <laughs> um okay so mine would be i regret this but the professor from gilligan's island because he could do anything but build a boat like he could help me figure everything oh. out i went very old yeah. school <laughs>
1: yeah you went disney and i forgot and we're not talking. we're not on an island we're in the mountains but i'm still taking maui from moana he can he can adapt to mountains. so yours is from hawaii and <laughs> mine's
0: from an island but basically we picked the yeah. same person <laughs> we did not understand the assignment mandy
1: we did not we did not. hey mandy
0: speaking of assignments what is it that you've been working on this week not not that this is your assignment but you
1: the yeah. phrase okay go ahead So I decided that we should do um, something new because it's been a while since we've started a new thing. And one of the only platforms that we have not been on this entire time is TikTok. And um, before everyone starts cracking up laughing, listen, I told Melissa, I've been going on these crazy um, TikTok journeys like every night for the last, I don't know. I'm very late to the game with TikTok. Don't laugh, first of all. Um, But for the last few months, I've been just scrolling TikTok and seeing how Awesome, it is, and I love it. And there's definitely sides of TikTok that I'm like, uh, I just want to steer away from there. Let the algorithm steer me away from there. You know, I don't want to go to those, but um, I love it on there. So I think it's great. There's so many people on there, and um, you can reach a lot of people. So I decided that we should make a TikTok and um, post some content on there. So I don't know what we're going to end up getting. I told Melissa that we didn't have to actually make TikToks ourselves. But now, of course, that I have created the TikTok account, I'm already thinking of. TikToks that will feature me and Melissa. So I'll have to see if I can convince was you not... to um, participate. You don't have to. I just have ideas. I know you're going to anyway. I will. <laughs> I will.
0: I'll do it. I've fought it for long enough. But I love – yeah. Yeah. I, I fought yeah. tic, TikTok for so long, but then I'd find myself watching all these TikTok
1: videos on like Instagram or something. I'm like, what am I doing? I can it's get crazy. this It's crazy. And they're so you know. silly. And yeah, and sometimes I just get struck with these ideas. Like since I've been on TikTok more, first of all, all day long, the only thing I hear playing in my head is like TikTok sounds and songs. Like that's all I hear. And so I apply these things to every scenario in my life. And I'm like, oh my yeah. gosh, why am I not making TikToks? I, there's so many ideas I have. So if you are on TikTok, you can follow us. Um, it's just at moms and murder is the TikTok page name. So find us there and follow us and no promises on what kind of content you're gonna get. But if you listen to our show, then you know anything goes. You can get Basically. anything. Basically. You can well, get anything. Not anything goes, but <laughs> well um, a little less than anything goes. A There's a little, little less of my algorithm little, that I've been able to feed yeah. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So exciting, fun stuff. I'm really excited to play around with that and um, to hopefully interact with some new people and and with people who already listen to our show. That's just another place that maybe you can find us and we can have some fun over there. So yeah, I'm excited about our new TikTok adventure.
0: I'm very terrified of random people now commenting and being like, "What is this? You're a mom who what?" So um, you'll have to <laughs> oh, help you'll me filter get those. That. Yeah, yeah, Ugh. you'll get those. I'm terrified get those for sure. You know, I yeah. can't do that. Okay, <laughs> so that's exciting. Um, and before we go, we're going to be playing a promo for the second season of the show "Dealing Justice." It's hosted by Jennifer and Lori. Um, it's the original podcast about those cold case playing cards that. That are out there that I've kind of forgotten in my memory yeah, um, that yeah. they exist, but they're amazing. And so they're working on missing person stories, and it's a really incredible show. And the hosts we found out are from Orlando. So it's like the what, only. What? I know. No, don't do that again. Don't do that on TikTok. <laughs> they don't like that. <laughs> Okay. The the last thing you need is me curating any form of TikTok. So don't listen to me. (laughs) Um, But anyway, we're excited. They're from Orlando. So um, make sure you guys check that out. They're they're in their second season and um, we're super
1: excited um, for you guys to hear them. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, that is it for this week. We will be back next week. Same time, same place, new story. Have a great week. Bye. Time for us to solve these cases one card at a time. They rolled her up in something and they put her in an alligator pit. She literally vanished without a trace. Because we will find answers. We're not going to go away. If it takes years, we're not going to go away.
0: We invite you to join us on season two of Dealing Justice. I'm Jennifer Dubisak. And I'm Lori Jennings. And together, we host Dealing Justice. In each episode, we spotlight one card from the cold case playing cards. We're meeting the family, learning about the towns, and sometimes even hearing new information for the very first time. It's important for us to let the victim's family and friends tell their story. Our mission is to humanize each and every victim so that they become
1: more than just a cold case.
0: Brittany was a fun-loving kid growing up. She was spicy. She didn't take no crap from anyone. We're
1: asking for our daughter's whereabouts to be made known.
0: You can support these families by listening to the stories, spreading the word, and hopefully someone will come forward to help solve the case.
1: I'm her father. I'm ultimately responsible for finding my daughter.
0: We would love to see the day when there are no more faces to put on the cold case playing cards. But until that day comes, we'll continue telling these stories in pursuit of dealing justice.